On this episode, we're going to be discussing litigation and all of the different facets. I am um, not an expert in litigation, so um, I'm hoping that my guest here is going to be able to walk me through. But uh, I think from, from the standpoint of the listener, um, you heard litigation. Don't shut off your podcast because Laura is actually quite, uh, quite instructive on litigation. And we're going to tie this all back into insurance because that's her expertise. So Laura Gregory is my guest for this particular episode. Laura, welcome. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Laura is a partner at the law firm of Sloan and Walsh in Boston. She is also an author, uh, featured as an author of a book called Hashtag Networked, How 20 Women Lawyers Overcame the Confines of COVID-19 Social Distancing to Create Connections, Cultivate Community, and Build Businesses in the Midst of a Global Pandemic. There's the book. <laughs> and she's very active on LinkedIn. So we will definitively put her uh, connection link in the show notes. But when you go in LinkedIn, just search hashtag Laura has it covered. And you're going to get your, uh, your quasi law degree on that. <laughs> uh, what do they call that when they give a degree to someone who didn't deserve it? Oh, what is that called? Um, hey, uh, Honorary, honorary, An honorary. you'll get your honorary degree from hashtag Laura. If you go to hashtag Laura has it covered. So uh, Laura again, welcome. I always start off all of these podcasts with the elevator pitch. Um, why don't you give a better description than I did? Who are you? And what do you do on a day to day basis? All right. Well, first of all, back to what you said about litigation. One of the things that I do is try and keep my clients out of litigation or minimize litigation. And there are a lot of ways to do that. Um, if you're an insurance company, you're going to be involved in litigation. It's unfortunately, I think, a reality these days. But uh, there are ways to minimize it uh, and to, to minimize the exposure if you are in litigation. Um, my day-to-day, -day, I um, am uh, entirely, my practice is entirely insurance coverage and bad faith. I do first and third party um, commercial and personal lines, um, variety of different coverages over my nearly 30-year career now, um, and uh, all of the bad faith claims that are related to that, um, which is a ever-changing landscape. Um, and COVID has certainly been uh, no stranger to that. We've seen uh, probably the most notorious has been the business interruption claims, which are sort of coverages that no one had paid attention to much mm -hmm. before this. And now we've seen them on the Wall Street Journal and the uh, Washington Post and um, have more law on that in the last year than probably the sum of business interruption law to date. So um, a lot of stuff uh, has been happening. I like coverage because it makes you think and every case is different. Um, no matter how well you know the policies, the facts are always different. And um, there are creative ways to look at things, um, sort of good and bad. And uh, I like that um, real, more academic sense of the analysis, which is why most people don't like it. So it's a good fit for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've uh, been at Sloan & Walsh uh, about 25 years now. Um, and we uh, do um, litigation in all different types of insurance defense and coverage and bad faith uh, um, in New England and uh, nationally. Um, and I, in my free time, am also on the um, select board in Andover, Massachusetts, which is a New England oddity that I grew up in the Midwest and didn't know about until I moved out here, but I sort of uh, analogize it to the board of directors of a corporation. Um, we, we are in charge, but we have a CEO, which is our town manager who runs the day-to-day -day and we hire or fire him um, or her. And um, then there are a number of other appointments that we have, but we're the policymakers and we're the sort of ultimate deciders of the things that are not legislative, um, which is done by 
um, town meeting, which is our residents that um, come out on a particular day and vote. It's very uh, interesting uh, um, phenomenon. So I was a political science major in college. So it's been very intriguing to learn about this new uh, um, government that I wasn't aware of. <laughs> how, many, how many terms have you served? I'm in my second term. I actually was reelected during uh, COVID, so uh, which was interesting. I was the chair of the uh, of the board uh, coming into COVID, and then I was supposed to have my election in March of 2020, um, which didn't happen as scheduled. Um, and instead, it happened in June um, with mail-in ballots, which we hadn't been able to do before that, and many different uh, changes. Um, and then I continued on as chair into uh, the beginning of August. So it was uh, um, a exciting time to be uh, involved in local government, not necessarily in a good way, but a lot of things that got done. And um, I think we handled it as well as we could in the circumstances. So yeah. hopefully we can come out of this soon. Um, how, many never books you, how many books do you think will come out about all of this COVID craze? And some of the behind the scenes stuff, because I bet like even someone in your situation, like I bet like you saw governmental action at the local level, like, I, I, excuse my French, but I bet you saw some shit. It, it was frustrating and some, some like, for example, we are subject to the open meeting law, which means that ordinarily um, we can only meet in person. We can only meet with 48 hours notice unless it's a, uh, an emergency. Um, and so until the law allowed us to meet virtually, we had to meet in person. So we had to figure out how to change uh, how, the law, how we could meet, you know, inside far enough apart. And at back, wow. you know, in March of last year, we hadn't figured out what we were doing at that point. You weren't supposed to wear a mask. And, you know, we didn't know how many people to have in a room. And uh, so it was it was very interesting trying to figure out how to do that. Um, now we've been meeting virtually for, I imagine we're approaching a year now. Um, and it's convenient to do it from your house, but it is a very different experience. And I think we don't get as much input from our residents as we would with an in-person meeting where somebody could attend. They can call in um, either on the phone or they can get you know, a Zoom link in um, or they can email us. So there are all these different ways they can get the information in, but it's it's not the same. Yeah. So yeah. I, hopefully I know we'll a lot back of, to that. I, I, grew, I grew up up the street in, in Haverhill, so I'm a uh, Merrimack mm. Valley person, Excellent. born and bred. <laughs> And so I'm very, and I worked at my first insurance gig was in Andover, right in downtown, right on Route 28. So I'm very familiar nice. with Andover. Uh, Phillips Academy was my, one of my accounts um, that I got to work on. So know the community well. And what people who are listening to this might not understand about like some of the local New England town politics. And it's probably the same out in other parts of the country, but like uh, the, a lot of the local people take that very seriously. And you get, a lot of them are repeat um, attendees. Like oh, they show up at every meeting and they speak at every meeting. They have stuff to say and they want to make sure that, you know, they have opinions and very strong ones about a lot of the stuff that, you know, including like where to put the stop sign type of thing. And a number of those people, uh, at least in Andover, are um, of the older age groups. So they've been particularly, understandably so, uh, you know, unwilling to come out uh, to things. So, uh, you know, I look forward to a time when we can can uh, hear from all those individuals again, because they've been pretty quiet for the last yeah. year. Yeah. Um, well, let's jump into litigation in your specialty. Um, you, we were on a panel, so you brought up COVID. Um, that was the big part of the conversation we had on our panel talking about uh, the pandemic. So we ju you just talked about how it influenced you on the town government side, but your bread and butter litigation, can you talk about what the pandemic has done on that side? And, and could you start as well by level setting bad faith just for anyone that's listening that doesn't understand the implications? Oh, sure. 
of um, bad faith, but then go into what that what that meant for COVID and the pandemic and you know business interruption and all of those things. So bad faith is sort of the I don't know almost insurance slang <laughs> for um, uh, for essentially the absence of good faith is where the label comes from, but it's extra contractual. So it's not just payments under the policy, it's additional payments that an insurance company would have to make because they didn't do something that they were supposed to do or they did something that they shouldn't have done with regard to generally a claim. Um, and it varies state to state, like all things insurance. Um, some states, I would say most states have a unfair claims practices act um, that at least impacts on the bad faith law in the state. Uh, many states like Massachusetts, you can make a direct claim under that statute um, saying that the insurance company violated the, um, the parameters of the statute. Other states, uh, only the commissioner of insurance can make those claims, but in most of those states, there's also case law that provides a way to get there. So the short answer is almost every state, I think every state has some way that a um, insured and oftentimes a claimant, if it's a liability policy, can make a claim against an insurance company for mishandling a claim. Yeah, and that and that can be that can be anything from you didn't pay what you were supposed to, or you didn't pay me enough, or like, you didn't pay it fast enough, or you didn't pay fast um, enough. Yeah, like yeah, um, or you didn't uh, send a letter about your rights at a certain time, or you didn't include every right, and now you want to rely on something later. Yeah, um, a lot of different uh, bases and. Um, those claims do vary state to state, but they can be very substantial. Yeah. Um, in Massachusetts, if you prove a violation of our statutory program, you can get triple damages if it's proved to be willful and the um, insured or the uh, plaintiff can get their attorney's fees as well. Um, so, and that's in addition to what they would be entitled to under the policy. So it, it can potentially be be big money. Every once in a while, we see a case where you have, you know, a four or five million dollar judgment that gets tripled, and then you add attorney's fees on it. So it can it can be ugly. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, it's thrown in as sort of a kitchen sink approach um, that everybody makes a claim for bad faith, and you know, awful lot of them, there's nothing really there. Um, but every once in a while, there's a big problem. Yeah. So it's definitely something to be concerned about. Yeah. So from the COVID standpoint, um, there were, so we have a lot of issues, right? So predominantly around business interruption, COVID causes governments to shut stuff down. Businesses can't do stuff and creative people are looking at those insurance policies and say, I have business interruption coverage over there and I bet I could find a way to get coverage, including that, um, hey, you didn't move fast, like you said, you didn't move fast enough or you denied me something that you shouldn't deny me. Uh, can, you, can you talk about the landscape around what COVID did? Um, on, in, I think it's predominantly commercial insurance. I don't know if you saw anything on the personal line side, but it was, it was definitively a mess. Well, business interruption definitely is just the commercial side. And um, I think that, that for anybody who doesn't understand what business interruption is, it's basically uh, in very specific circumstances, a business, if they have purchased the coverage, um, can get some portion of essentially the profits that they would have had, had they been operating correctly. Um, and they may also, depending on what kind of coverage they get, get some coverage for extra expenses that they had as a result of whatever the problem is. Um, and the problem is generally requires uh, direct physical loss, either to the premises or within the vicinity of the premises, again, depending on which coverage you have. Um, and the problem with the cases involving COVID is you have to have direct physical loss. And direct physical loss 
Uh, generally, that's something like, okay, you're a restaurant owner and a tree falls on your restaurant and you're not able to operate your restaurant or your building catches fire and you have to shut down and rebuild. Um, those sorts of situations, there's no question, there's direct physical loss. If stuff is burning up, it's directly physically damaged. Um, if a tree falls on it, there's direct physical loss. If there is an allegation that a virus is present in the air, almost all the courts, I don't think I can say all, but almost all the courts have uh, determined so far that the presence of COVID is not direct physical loss. Um, so a number of these policies also have virus exclusions, which of course was a big problem because COVID is caused by the coronavirus, which shockingly is a virus. Yep. Um, so, so, there, so the courts have been determining almost entirely that there's no coverage for these, which is, in my opinion, appropriate under the terms of the policy, but it's a terrible situation for these businesses. And me with my elected official hat on, you know, we're doing everything we can to support our local restaurants, including me going out for takeout a lot more than I used to. Um, <laughs> me too. And, <laughs> and, um, and trying to find ways that the government can support them and things like that. And they're in a terrible position. And we know that a lot of these businesses are not gonna survive and it's awful. Um, but that doesn't change the contract that is the insurance policy. So I think the, the determinations have been correct, but they've been painful. Um, and, and people didn't really understand this coverage. So that makes it even more difficult. Uh, hopefully yeah. people will have a better understanding of how this coverage works um, by virtue of it having been uh, in the news and those sorts of things. Do you, do you think there's a possibility, I, I brought this up in um, on LinkedIn and some tweets on social media, but it's been, it's been a little while. Um, I, you know, there's some creative, smart people that work um, on, you know, the plaintiff side. Um, they'll find things. Um, and oftentimes we shoot ourselves in the foot as insurers, like we, you know, ambiguous policy language and all of that, but they're, they're very creative. And I made, I made a suggestion that, um, you know, just given my background in commercial insurance, I know the intent was not to cover this, right? The virus exclusions have been around for over a decade, right? And they, and they came about based off of other litigation that occurred that could have been virus or bacterial mold related. So they all kind of got lumped together. And it's well, like, in my understanding that when we had the SARS problem of, I don't know how long ago was that, maybe eight or 10 years ago yeah. when there was, uh, that that really kicked the um, exclusions into overdrive, yeah. that companies realized that they didn't want to cover those sorts of things. Because yeah. um, they're is, not charging for it. And right? it's a like, whole different risk. It's, yeah, it's, completely. It's the equivalent of having a hurricane hit the whole country all at the same time. It's, it's not understood. Um, and I think the intention was always not to cover it. And so those exclusions were meant to cover any ambiguous language that could give plaintiff's lawyer kind of an open door to, hey, there's some coverage here. Um, but, you know, that's what we get taught when we take, you know, continuing edge ed classes is that this, when I first heard of it, I'm like, of course, it's not covered. Like, I learned that in CPCU class, like, this is the kind of thing that's not covered. And I almost saw it as a vehicle from what you described in your prior answer was um, that there might be an ENO option. Do you think there's any opportunity now for these companies to get to get the quick no, right? Or to kind of find money, see, see that door close and then go to their brokers and say, you should have told us this. Like we didn't understand yeah. this. You there, think there's a, a door there? I oh, I don't know if it's a successful door, but I think there's going to be litigation there. There already is um, claims about it. And um, in most states, in order to make a claim against, uh, for an insured to make a claim against their agent successfully, they have to prove a special relationship with the agent, which is generally a pretty high hurdle. Um, 
it has to be, they have to really function more like a risk manager and really have gotten to know your business and um, usually over a period of time and to understand the risks and to have um, a continuing relationship. Um, and I'm not saying that, that those relationships don't exist. They certainly do. Uh, but I find at least in the cases that we see that it is more unusual than not. Um, how about in situations like um, brokers like uh, Marsh, Aon, Gallagher, where, um, you know, that's kind of their thing is, is um, you know, big corporate type of commercial insurance with, you know, I, I've been at the Marsh and the Aons and I've been at the agencies and it's a different yeah, it's a different thing. I would say that the, the marshes are almost like trying to sell that. Hey, we're we're because we're a broker, we represent you, not the companies. Would that would is that does that teeter at all? Um, I think that that can be it. I think a lot of times when, especially if you're talking about a, um, a big insured, that they'll have a risk manager that is the one that makes more of the decisions or advises the company on the decisions than the um, broker does. Um, obviously it depends a lot. And I can't also represent that every state is like that, but uh, a number of states do require that. And that's gonna be a question of fact in every single case. What is the relationship um, between them? What's the, what was the expectation? Was that reasonable? You know, Going through yeah. like the communications um, having said that, I think we can probably say across the board that everybody could have done a better job explaining to insureds business interruption coverage. Um, as one of well, my as one of my colleagues um, explains it to me, she always says, "Nick, there's never any harm in over communicating." So. Um, I think that also a lot of insureds that didn't have this coverage, whether they chose not to or whether they didn't know it existed, are now aware of the risk in a new and horrible way. But it's a risk that now uh, people can understand better. And so I think that helps this to be an easier conversation for businesses to understand because even if they were a lucky type of business that was able to even thrive in COVID, you know, say they were making laptops for elementary school students or something, they probably did well, um, but they can understand that something could happen that they have no control of that could greatly impact on their business and that that's a exposure that they may want to consider paying a premium to get some coverage if that should happen. Yeah. And, and that was on, on the panel that we participated in that that's what I brought up was that's what I'm seeing is this is it well beyond COVID this business interruption has finally, I think, uh, been raised to a high enough level that I, I think we tried to do on the bro at the brokerage, uh, you know, when, when I think significant brokers try to have serious discussions about business interruption, but it doesn't happen often enough, especially in this way to open people's eyes. Yeah, uh, to the civil it. authority, like I think everyone's agenda. I think the civil authority particularly because, you know, people couldn't imagine a situation where it was likely that they were gonna be yeah. shut down for a significant amount of time by some government order. Um, we can certainly understand that now. Yeah. Um, what I also had just okay. seen today that the um, New Jersey legislature uh, passed a bill um, that is being sent to the governor for signature that would require notification of insureds about business interruption not being not covering pandemics. Um, so that's interesting. We've had a number of legislative bills that were essentially trying to create coverage retroactively for these events that, um, at least to my knowledge, none of them have passed. Um, but uh, New Jersey is, I would guess, likely to now have a notification type um, situation with business interruption. I believe Louisiana has one as well. So there may be some more activity in providing information to insureds uh, that's required 
Yeah. Uh, certainly, I hope that it's done regardless of whether it's required because it can only help everybody. Uh, you think there are any odds, any good odds that any of these states retroactively find coverage? Well, I I always hesitate to, you know, guess what a legislature would do. Um, you know, I'm an elected official. I understand there's pressure to provide for these businesses that are hurting. But the fact that none of these have passed yet, and New Jersey, in fact, had one of the earliest ones that when was supposed to go to the floor for discussion back, I think, April maybe of last year. Uh, and it died, um, never made it, it came out of committee and was never seen again. Um, I think that people have realized that they, they're just going to end up with a lot of litigation. There are constitutional issues, which yeah. insurance coverage lawyers don't deal with constitutional issues often. So that's sort of been a new and interesting one. Um, but to change a contract after the fact to uh, change its application um, without a implication as to you know premium or anything um, would be catastrophic for the insurance industry, um, but uh, and just not good contract law. Yeah, I don't I don't see it being successful, and the insurance companies are going to fight it because their their cost if they don't be, is enormous. It would be existential. So, for, for exactly. a lot of yeah. so so it's kind of it's going to end up in litigation and i think that that um maybe that message has gotten across we'll see there's still a bunch of those bills out there so it could happen yeah how has this affected other litigation so um you you uh humorously discussed the challenges it took to get a uh local government online and to be able to have things so courts got the same problems yeah right um and so i'm i'm assuming that did very little to increase efficiency in getting these things processed so how how do you how is it how are the current set of court cases now and could um i'm, I'm looking at my notes to you i kind of giggled at my own little thing like because of the suez canal ship i'm like is does this create a suez canal ship now, did you uh, see my post yesterday? It was about the Suez Canal no. and the insurance implications. <laughs> no, but but that's that's kind of ironic, right? Like we could have our own little problem here, where um, COVID, in my in my imagination, I like these like we got to get through the backlog. Like this could yeah. this could extend out indefinitely and create a backlog problem, just like that ship. Is do you well, think that will happen? Um, I mean, that's already happening. The civil courts have been doing very little. Um, the, so essentially, when, when you're looking at a court system, criminal is going to have priority over civil every single time, as it should. Um, and there are different constitutional requirements for essentially physical presence in the criminal context. Um, so what we've seen is a lot of courts have done well with things that don't that aren't trials. Um, for example, most of my practice, uh, we, not all, but a lot of my cases are decided on summary judgment or maybe even motions to dismiss, as we've seen with the uh, business interruption cases. And those are file your brief and make your argument to the judge. And those have mostly been done by Zoom or the equivalent. Um, and I think they've done well. Um, and Part of the reason a lot of these business interruption decisions came out is because they could be done that way. Um, now, cases that have to go to trial, like all of those bread and butter defense cases that insurance companies have, a lot of those would require a trial if they go all the way forward. Um, I know in Massachusetts state courts, we're looking at cases that were supposed to be on um, April of this year are getting pushed off at least a year. Uh, and, the, and the judges are saying that that year is really just a guideline and that it's going to get pushed out farther. Mm -hmm. um, I think mediation has been, has done well. I was dubious about mediation via Zoom. I felt like that a lot of cases you just really need all the personalities, you know, together and not being distracted. 
it's actually done really well. I've settled a bunch of cases um, through Zoom mediation. I've settled a bunch of cases without mediation. Insurance companies, in my experience, have been eager to settle cases to get them done, to get them off their books uh, in situations where it makes sense. Obviously, not every case makes sense. Um, but when you're also looking at states where your interest is running on any potential judgment, that adds to it as well. So it's sitting on the books of the insurance company for say an extra year or two more than they had anticipated. Massachusetts uh, simple interest on a tort case is 12% per year. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> from the date of filing of the suit. So um, Rhode Island, it's 12% per year from the date of the accident. Um, so, so that can add up really fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that and that would be um, very much counter to anyone because as you were describing the backlog, I'm thinking, oh, it'd be advantageous, right, for you know someone that's being sued to have it kind of drag out. People would, you know, might get antsy and might they might be the first ones to try to settle quickly. But for the one that's getting sued, it could, if the judgment goes against them, it's quite painful because that extra time, time is money. And yeah. specifically in that case, that delay is killing them figuratively. So there are you know, a lot of things there. Uh, the other thing is, what a trial is going to look like. Uh, are we comfortable with having a Zoom trial? Um, Massachusetts, they're basically uh, in the state court switching to six-person juries, um, which defense attorneys aren't too happy about. And we're trying to figure out whether we have uh, a constitutional defense to that or not. These are all issues that no one has dealt with before. Um, if you have a jury in person, then how do you have people six feet apart? Do you uh, require witnesses to take their masks off while they're testifying? What if they aren't comfortable with that? Um, how is your jury pool different? Because um, depending on the state of say vaccines, you may have different groups that are overly represented or underrepresented. From what I understand, the numbers of like the percentage of people that show up for jury duty that are called are extremely down. Um, uh, so getting a jury for an in-person trial is going to be a challenge and it's going to be a different jury. And how has COVID affected it? Um, do people have different views on, say, medical establishments than they did before this? Or maybe Big Pharma has gotten uh, a makeover in light of the fact that they created these vaccines that were at least I'm eager to get. <laughs> um, so, uh, so a lot of different things that are all being thrown together, and it's going to be difficult to predict how those are going to play out. Wow! And so, I, I wanted to get into attorney performance and how insurers can sort of gauge how how litigation is going for them, how their attorneys are performing. But this adds a wrinkle to that right as well like this sort of changes the dynamic around that where i mean you you could do all the right things and just because of the the new normal that we're in get a completely different outcome even if you did it perfectly well i mean juries are always a guessing game you never know what you're going to get from a jury you can have a slam dunk and uh sorry about that um, you can have a slam dunk and not have uh, um, your jury see it the same way. Mm -hmm. You just don't know. Um, it's easier to guess what a judge is going to do with the case than what a jury is. Um, but, and yeah, I think right now we've got so many new factors that have been thrown into the mix that have never been part of the mix before. Uh, that it is really a guessing game uh, more than normal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's also why uh, everyone has been more interested in mediation. You can get things resolved faster. You have a greater level of control. Um, 
And, you know, mediation's about compromise. So it means that if you're successful, everybody's going to be a little bit unhappy. You know, somebody's going to have paid more than they thought maybe they had to pay, and somebody's going to have gotten less than they thought maybe they were entitled to. Um, and there are a lot of reasons why that makes more sense now than ever. Um, and I would say as far as attorney performance, uh, if you're an insurance company and your uh, attorneys are not talking to you about ways to resolve things, um, that's a problem. That's a red flag. Uh, that not every case is suitable for mediation and there may be different times where mediation makes sense, but these are discussions that you should be having with your attorneys. You should be figuring out what makes sense for an individual case. And also understanding that, particularly if you're talking about coverage and bad faith litigation, that every case is a little bit different and um, that you can't predict as much you know, how people are gonna respond to for similar auto accidents, you can have a pretty good guess. Um, coverage cases are, are different. Um, and oftentimes, like I was saying, a lot of my cases are decided on summary judgment, which is a huge amount of work goes into writing those briefs. And then you have maybe a half hour oral argument, maybe more if the judge lets you. Um, and that's your trial. So. So insurance companies shouldn't skimp on having a really good brief and having somebody who can present something well to the judge because the whole case could be resolved at a summary judgment stage and then you don't have to go to trial and trials are expensive and long and we don't know when they're gonna happen. <laughs> um, so, so that's what I would I would say to to be having those discussions with with your attorneys. And if it seems like your attorneys are not able to have those discussions and look at the pros and cons for the company, then they need to look somewhere else because those issues are there are always going to be these issues. Another thing that's hard about um, coverage litigation is policies are pretty standard. Um, you run across manuscript policies or endorsements here and there, but for the most part, everybody uses standard forms. And what that means is if you litigate and lose on your standard form in case one, it's gonna come up in case two and 10 and 100. Um, that also means if you're litigating with another insurance company, say you're arguing about who gets to pay what of a judgment against a, a um, common insured, then you may wanna try and settle that case because if the decision goes in your favor on that one case, you may be in the other position in another 500 cases and is that law really gonna help you? So these are all issues that ought to be being discussed because they're gonna come up over and over again. It's not the same as representing you know, an individual that's, the defendant in a auto case because presumably they're not going to have 10 more of the same auto case. <laughs> um, but the insurance company is likely to have issues with the same language and arguably similar facts uh, in even other states because they don't usually vary too much in a lot of these policies. Do you think there'll be uh, a increase in mediation? Do you think that will be a tool that you can use to prevent and mitigate things going to trial? Are you going, do you, do you feel there, like there's gonna push? I think there already has been. Um, and one thing that we're seeing is more push by the courts to get things into mediation um, because the courts recognize that trials are not happening at least in a familiar way anytime soon. Um, so the Massachusetts state courts have provided mediators. I know that, um, a number of the mediators that I've worked with and um, one of my partners does a lot of mediation have been extremely busy uh, and rightfully so. It's been the perfect time to do it. We've now figured out how to do it remotely. And if it's a case that the parties are willing to look at and do on a you know digital basis, it's worth the time to, to attempt it, in my opinion, yeah. in, in most cases. Can um, can things around mediation and arbitration, can that be put into insurance policies? Does that break any sort of insurance regulation 
in terms of rights of the policyholder. Um, you know, so I'm, and where I'm going with this, Laura, is can can we preempt this a little bit and add that to the policy ahead of time to kind of make it almost more likely than not that it would go to mediation or arbitration before it gets before it has the potential to get messy. Well, first of all, let me distinguish between arbitration and mediation. So mediation is essentially a voluntary, we'll go in and discuss trying to come to a compromise amongst the parties. Arbitration, on the other hand, is essentially a private court action, for lack of a better word. It's uh, binding on the parties. It generally has either one or a panel of usually lawyers that are the judges, functionally the arbitrators, and they're presented with evidence, usually in a less formal manner than a trial, but very similar to a trial. And they make a decision that's then binding on the parties. And generally with an arbitration, you waive your right of appeal. So if you're in arbitration, that's it. Win, lose, or draw, you are done and you can't go back to the courts. Um, that can be required. And we see it off all the time in, you know, like our cell phone contracts and, uh, you know, any, any other, almost every contract we enter into as consumers will have an arbitration clause. Um, you don't tend to see them in insurance policies. And I think it would, there probably would be some pushback on that. But the one exception, and it's not really arbitration, but it's similar, is the appraisal process. Um, or in Massachusetts, we call it reference because of course we're a little bit weird. Um, but basically that is on a, um, a first party property claim. If there's a disagreement as to the value of whatever the thing is, um, then it goes to an appraisal process, which is sort of similar to an arbitration. It's usually a three person panel. Each side chooses one, um, uh, appraiser, and then the two appraisers choose the third, who's called the referee. Um, and they are presented with evidence about the value of whatever it is. It could be, you know, a vehicle, it could be a house. We're seeing a lot more personal property appraisals in the last few years than we ever did before. Um, but then you determine the value of that, and that's separate from coverage. So oftentimes we have appraisal uh, processes that are running parallel with coverage issues. Um, so that, cause you can figure out the value of the item while still disputing whether there's coverage or not, even litigating whether there's coverage or not. And once that determination is made, you have the valuation as determined by the um, appraisal and you can move forward. Yeah, so is it as a mitigative feature, are you expecting more? to see more of these? Uh, I've been seeing a lot more mediations in the last year. I think the real question will be at, once the courts are back in full right. operation and right. start to catch up, will we, will we continue to see more? I think we might. I think that we've seen uh, some of the values of it. Um, there's been a lot of mediation though in the past. Um, maybe maybe the, the individuals involved like, um, you know, the insureds or um, the plaintiffs will see more value to it, um, having been through more of it in the, in the uh, you know, COVID period. Um, but we certainly have seen more, I, the mediators have pivoted very well to digital and uh, I give them a huge amount of credit because I was very dubious at the beginning and I, I would continue to do it. Uh, I could see it being a less expensive endeavor. For example, if you have a situation where you've got 10 or 15 parties and you would have people that were flying from various different parts of the country or even the world to go to a mediation, um, it would be a lot less expensive to get everyone together on a digital platform. And if it fails, you still haven't put as much money into it as, as you would bringing everybody. And you can always continue on with your case. So um, I think we'll see more of it. A lot of, um, a lot of cases like, uh, I see a lot of other insurance cases, which is uh, disputes between two insurance companies as to their obligations with regard to a particular um, claim or loss. And 
those, you know, it's everybody's job to deal with it. You, you don't have a situation where you have a plaintiff who's personally involved um, in the same way. And those kind of cases are perfect for a digital mediation. And I think, you know, we can see, we can expect to see more of those. Uh, we'll see if I'm right, but that's my guess. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, it, it's part of the reason why I asked is because it just, it seems like it makes sense that um, you know the the courts will be choked up for a considerable period of time. I think it almost seems sensible, uh, reasonable that uh, people will get comfortable with it, right? It'll become more normal, and um, I think more uh, they'll be more accepting of it. And I, you know, it, it gets it gets to where we discuss where we started this. You when you started your uh, description of yourself, you said part of your job was to minimize litigation. That fits right in, right? Like how, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I'm, I'm of the belief that, you know, we try to prevent and mitigate stuff before we go full force into it. Absolutely. And how can that be done from a litigation standpoint? What are some of the communicative efforts that you make, some of the tools, techniques, um, to try to get things resolved faster before they get bloody? Well, first of all, I think that you start even before that back with best practices and okay. make sure that those claim notes are something that the person typing them on their computer would be happy to testify in front of the CEO of their company and the plaintiff about because that could happen. Um, and, and just to use sort of a general you know, reasonableness standard on if someone were reading this, what would they think? And if someone were looking back over this case, do I have, could I explain how this claim you know, was handled and why, you know, ABC happened. Um, if there's a 60 day delay on something, why is that? Is there a reason? If there's a reason, can you articulate the reason? Because there may be a great reason, um, but if you can't put that out there or if it's not shown in your claim file, that's a problem. And it's not one that you can't overcome but if you don't have to overcome it, that's better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then second, I would say um, a lot of, uh, like Massachusetts, for example, on a bad faith claim, you, um, in most cases, you have to do a demand letter. So they, the, um, either the insured or the plaintiff has to send a letter to the insurance company outlining you know, the terrible things the insurance company did. Um, they should take these letters seriously, the letters should be responded to. And if the case is one where, you know, something wasn't handled well, then try and get it resolved quickly before it goes into litigation. Um, because if you're gonna have to pay some money in the end, you're better off paying probably less in the beginning and um, then not having to pay for the cost of the litigation, the potential for bad public relations coming out of it. You know, there, there are a lot of possibilities. Um, I would also say uh, get a lawyer involved because we see a lot of these where either they don't respond to the letter or the response to the letter is not optimal. Um, and you don't want to lose rights or characterize a case in a way from the very beginning that hurts you later. Um, I also, you know, I write a lot of these letters and I always write them with the idea that I'm the big bad insurance company and I want, that's how I'm going to be perceived. Mm -hmm. So I need to be super nice about everything and I need to explain everything. So I always tell the story. This is my opportunity to tell the story from the insurance company perspective. And these letters in Massachusetts are gonna go before the judge or jury, depending on what the plaintiff decides to do. So take that opportunity, tell your story and tell it like a story because insurance is not the most exciting stuff for most people, <laughs> um, but the claims can be interesting. So tell the story and tell it from your perspective uh, and do it nicely. And remember, again, anything that you communicate 
could be shown later to a judge or a jury. So write it like that. Um, yeah, it, it, I think we, we've, uh, we recently broadcast uh, an episode um, where we talked about claims and we talked about uh, from a claims professional standpoint, we talked about like there's so much outsourcing of um, adjustments, you know, adjustment services and things like that. And, and I'm seeing like this dichotomy or potential conundrum with that. There's the potential to do more outsourcing, which means you're losing a little bit of the control in how you want that claim potentially handled. But there's this wave of technology that's coming in where you should be able to resolve a lot of this stuff and 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 uh, keep track of it like measure things there should be there are computers computer software that should tell you like this claim is at this stage and here are the ones you need to worry about like that technology exists and but it's from what you're describing i see like i can see how you know, you want to balance costs around that. So there's going to be that outsourcing uh, pressure is going to continue to exist to balance the cost, but it could be offset with some technology, but it still gets back to some just basic things about like how you're treating the customer, how you're documenting that kind of stuff. But it, it in, in some ways, I want to kind of summarize what you're saying. A lot of this is preventable, right? Like if you just kind of grab the bull by the horns. And do you, do you think there are like cultural issues around that? And I mean, uh, like business cultural issues of how this making, like to make it preventable, right? To do these things is culture kind of like a driving factor or organizations that sort of demand that, hey, we want the policyholder to be treated with respect. We want to do all the right things. And we demand of, the technology and the outsourcing that you do this versus other companies that just might not have it in their DNA. And it's more of like, just get it done. Just quick. I, I think the communication piece with the insurance is key and that keeping them informed and, um, and treating them well, will minimize litigation because if a, uh, whether it's a claimant or a policyholder, feels that they're being treated fairly, they're much less likely to bring a claim. Um, and they're less likely to seek out a lawyer to see if they have a claim to bring. Um, so I, I think that's, that's so important. Um, I also think with all the technology that it's very important to sort of harness it properly, that there has to be a human side of it, whether that's um, communicating the information to the insured, um, having a, a single person who takes in all of that data to address a particular claim, um, to make sure that the right and left hand know what's going on is key. Um, because all that's going to be in the claim file. And when it lands on my desk and I'm looking at the claim file, I'm going to be like, well, there's all this data over here, but no one did anything with it. And then you turned around and said that the claim was worth X or that it, there was no damage for some portion that you actually have data in your file. I mean, those are the nightmares. Yeah. Um, and those are the, are the bad faith claims that can get ugly. So uh, again, best practices, make sure that you know what's, what information you have and how it fits with, with the claim um, and that you act accordingly. Yeah. Um, I want to ask one final question to respect your time um, on social inflation, you know, just uh, the concern that um, jury awards are just going to get out of hand. Do you think this is a trend or do you think this is just part of the cycle? Well, um, we're certainly trending up. Um, I would say the biggest driver of social inflation has been nuclear verdicts. And nuclear verdicts, when I say that, I mean, uh, I think they have a dollar sign attached to them, but essentially I view an, a nuclear verdict as one where the damages awarded by a jury greatly exceed the information and evidence put forth. Um, so the you know million dollar stub toe sort of scenario. 
And um, a number of plaintiff's lawyers have done really well. Um, there's this, uh, I don't know, program for plaintiff's attorneys called the reptile theory, which I could talk to you for another hour about, but it's, it's done well with juries and um, defense attorneys are doing better with uh, counteracting it. So hopefully we're, we're gonna see some uh, diminish, but, um, but with these big verdicts and with the internet and everybody you know, having all this information, people think that these numbers are more, I don't know, normal. So there's been a normalization of them, which has resulted in this idea of jury verdicts being more um, than sort of reality. So that when a juror is sitting in the box, they may be viewing things differently. Um, and I suspect it's probably going to continue because the internet's certainly not going away. And if anything, over the last year, we've all been more attached to you know, constant information than ever before. So that's not gonna change. Um, I'm hopeful that defense attorneys will continue to improve their ability to counteract these claims. We've got a lot of um, uh, case law that's addressing them. Um, I drafted an amicus brief against the reptile theory uh, in Massachusetts, and we're waiting on the decision from the SJC, our Supreme Court, on that um, to basically suggest, well, we suggested to the court that there were a number of uh, evidentiary issues that were not, that were handled appropriately by the trial judge and then the appeals court flipped it. So, um, so I think we're gonna see some changes. Um, the law tends to be slow um, to respond to things. And um, as a result, the plaintiffs have made a lot of hay in the interim. <laughs> so if we can get some control on that, you know, then things may start to, uh, to move down. But um, also some of the big cases have been like, it's against big corporations. And some of those corporations have done really well during COVID, like the pharmaceutical industry, for example, has, um, has definitely, in most people's view, improved a lot. At least, you know, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J are looking pretty good. Um, so that could change things too. Um, and uh, I've got a good friend who's a jury consultant and um, does works with companies on how to present to juries so as to not trigger some of these, you know, big bad corporation feelings, which is true with insurance companies too. Um, and a lot of the stuff about the business interruption is this feeling that insurance companies have an unlimited amount of money, mm -hmm. um, which of course is not true. And in many lines of business, the only thing that's kept them afloat is the stock market with the premium dollars. So, um, so it's, uh, it's gonna be interesting. I think people also don't quite realize that the nuclear verdicts are causing their premiums to increase. Um, that connection is to, I guess, disjointed for people to understand. Somewhat, someone else's problem. Yeah. Well, uh, the law may move slow, but this hour flew by, and we didn't even <laughs> and we didn't even touch Florida. And you brought up <laughs> reptile theory, which I'm gonna go have to research now. So, oh, look uh, at my post on LinkedIn. I did a post on it. <laughs> okay, we'll, 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 um, I will add that um, to. Uh, to the show notes. So if you're listening to this, go ahead. Uh, you can connect with Laura. I'll put all of her information as well um, and and link to all of that. But the hour tr did truly fly by and you have uh, you have a nice knack of taking something that's kind of like an insurance, probably something that's not as exciting as we think it is, but making it exciting to someone that you're talking to, so you have a nice knack of doing that, and I appreciate you. Well, one, one thing an I try and do through my LinkedIn posts is to make insurance understandable, approachable, and even interesting. Um, also, just to make people realize that it's involved in everything. So, like yesterday, I posted about the Suez Canal and um, all of the different impacts that that was uh, going to have, and I'm certain we didn't, you know, hit all of them, but. 
certainly all those containers on that ship are delayed, all of the hundreds of ships that are continuing to be delayed, or the additional exposure for the ones that went around uh, Africa instead of waiting. Um, oh, without a doubt. Like I, I have a I have a reinsurance friend who's in marine and cargo. And I said, this is going to affect you. He's like, yes, of course. He's like, yeah. the, only, the only thing I can uh, cross my fingers over is we have million dollar retentions. So we might be able to escape, but someone's someone's definitively going to be paying stuff out. And, and he he thinks he might as well. And that's way up yeah. on the reinsurance side. So yeah, working its way. And there's some limitations on that because it's admiralty and the liability exposure is more limited in admiralty than it is in, say, tort law in the United States. So uh, it, it's got a lot of different twists and turns. Um, but um, yeah, so, you know. I, I, say we, I say we pause the recording and restart it and just go right into the Suez Canal and talk for another hour. You have that, <laughs> you have that knack. So. Um, well, thank you. I. I appreciate that and uh, thank you so much. All right, this has been great. Thanks.